2024 marks two years since the beginning of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. In those two years, the world has learned much from Ukrainians about countering authoritarian information operations, about the importance of preparation for and recognition of such threats, the opportunity to amplify the response through multi-sectoral coalitions, and the opportunities to understand the information ecosystem faster and more effectively presented by artificial intelligence. Today, we're excited to be joined by one of the innovators whose work has accelerated the response to the Kremlin's so-called firehose of falsehood through the use of artificial intelligence and close collaboration between the government, non-governmental sector, and private sector. I'm Adam Fivenson, Senior Program Officer at the National Endowment for Democracy's International Forum for Democratic Studies. And I'm John Glenn, Senior Director of the International Forum. You're listening to Power 3.0, a podcast bridging ideas and practice on global challenges to democracy. We talk with civic activists, experts, and thinkers from around the world about defining challenges to democracy, such as the integrity of the information space, fighting corruption and kleptocracy, as well as challenges on the horizon, such as emerging technologies and their implications for democracy. We're joined today by Ksenia Ilyuk, co-founder of Let's Data, a Ukrainian firm that uses artificial intelligence to detect emerging information operations that target Ukraine and other democracies, and that works closely with a wide range of government and non-government partners to drive a collaborative response. Welcome, Ksenia. Thank you so much for having me. Ksenia, it's so good to have you with us. So maybe I can start by saying, you know, you were part of the process of the report that we wrote uh, last February around the one-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine called Shielding Democracy, ned.org, on our website. This report highlighted how civil society organizations in Ukraine and around Central and Eastern Europe were adapting their work to secure the integrity of the information space in the face of the Kremlin's ongoing information operations. These operations were trying to undermine Ukrainian support for democracy, and territorial integrity, as well as to undermine the global coalition of democracies that supports Ukraine. So with that in mind, maybe I can ask you to look back at the past couple of years and what you've seen and what you've learned. How have you seen Russia's efforts in the information space evolve and where are we today, two years on? So I think the first thing that we see is that um, Thanks God, they finally start writing proper Ukrainian language. Um, and I wish I could say they learned Ukrainian, but not really. Um, what do you is... mean? What was it like at the beginning? Oh, they would usually use Google Translate. Um, and that's kind of the thing. Like a lot of people think that like Russians automatically speak Ukrainian because Ukrainians like has to automatically speak Russian. But that's not the case. Hmm. Um, so they would usually use Google Translate if they would want to have a more of a appealing piece of uh, malign content uh, circulating online. And who's they in that case? Malign actors that in Ukraine usually pro-Russian actors on social media. In this case, it would be specifically uh, Telegram channels, uh-huh. um, anonymous Telegram channels. But also one of the things that we see more and more is the bots on Facebook that are more and more writing in a proper Ukrainian. And this is... Um, our assumption that this is actually the moment where they are using large language models. So this is a, we definitely see the big quality improvement because if we even compare it with the start of the full scale war, we've seen so much horrendous information. Like it just like was so not believable. We're definitely going to come back to this topic of generative artificial intelligence and large language models. But since you mentioned it in the context of what Russia is doing, maybe you could just explain a little bit more about what you mean. How does a large language model help improve their Ukrainian? Oh, yeah. So basically, um, 
they would use the large language models to make it write the content. So they would use the large language. And th this is the question. This is something we don't know. Are they using the large language models like um, OpenAI ones, like GPT-1? Um, Are they using something more like open source, like Llama from Meta? This is like the open question. We don't know that, but we definitely see this improvement of quality. So we, um, from the text, how it's written, how it's structured, it has an indication that it was the text that was produced in Ukrainian by the, by the large language model. So, um, yeah, if you think about the large language model, just uh, yeah, think about ChatGPT. That's the best uh, way to like have this association. So they would use it to basically say like produce a certain kind of post uh, about uh, Fury Ukrainian saying that all Ukrainians are corrupt and something like that. And if they're in proper Ukrainian, are they more persuasive? Do they fool people? Um, I would say they are definitely much harder to identify. Aha. Because it was before, like, first of all, like, uh, before the start of the full-scale war, actually, if I could uh, say from our uh, perspective, like, from the analysis that we've done, um, usually it would be, like, 60-70% of malign uh, content um, in Russian language uh, targeting Ukrainians, mm -hmm. and the rest would be in Ukrainian, and actually Ukrainian would be, part of it would be just like this. Like, we would see that it's um, like that with mistakes. We have tons of memes, actually, about, like, how the translation was so terrible that, like, um, it really became a meme. Uh, and only would be, like, I think maybe around 5% that would be really sophisticated ones in Ukrainian language. So with the start of full-scale war, that changed dramatically. So now the primarily we have the, the most effective malign influence coming in Ukrainian language from pro-Russian accounts. So, yeah, that's uh, kind of a big, a big change in, in that. Maybe this is a nice segue then um, into to this next question, um, which looks a little bit more at the global level. And since we're talking about large language models and the adaptability um, of a message of an information operation, you know, how are you seeing Russia changing its approach to influencing democracies in other regions, maybe like Latin America, maybe like Africa, Southeast Asia? So when we talk about uh, Russian malign influence, uh, it's very important to talk about infrastructure. So I think what's... Uh, very different and similar uh, across the world is the infrastructure that Russia is using. So, uh, and they would usually adopt this infrastructure to the to the local context, and that's uh, the most important. So, uh, for example, right, um, RT is finally banned in Europe, right? Mm. So, what they did is they started like uh, developing RT in other regions. Like, for example, RT in Balkans, um, it was just like a year ago um, in November 2022, they really? launched the RT in Balkans, mm. um, heavily working like full speed on content, everything like. So they've started um, investing in the RT in Balkans, right, to, ha to have it. And that's what we see in other regions as well. So they understand that this is the, the, the powerful thing, so they would use it. Then the second thing is like, for example, Telegram. Um, they promote Telegram in other countries. Um, they promote Telegram because... Oh, that's a platform? Telegram, yes. Okay. Um, it's actually a funny thing because um, Telegram used to be a messenger. I say used to be because it's right. no longer just a messenger. They've added comments. They've added reactions to the channels. Like for me personally, like it's the full social media. And uh, um, wh why, why pro-Russian forces like it so much? Because it's like there is zero content moderation. Literally zero. So what we've seen, for example, like around the world is that a lot of um, 
a, lo- a lot of those actors were banned on different platforms like YouTube and others because uh, some of the things were just the, the violation, like like the hate speech and things like that. Not No need even to go with uh, like fake news, disinformation, all of these things. They were just like very often just like homophobic or something like that. So um, it was uh, kind of an easy way to ban them from, from using the platforms. So they've started going on telegram and they would even write like a lot of them would uh, even they still have the pages on facebook for instance they would write like fo- like go to my telegram channel because here i am free huh. here i can tell you whatever i think huh. no moderation no trust and safety exactly exactly mm-hmm. complete like anonymity they created this whole infrastructure in terms of telegram inside we've seen the same model being transported from a country to country like this was the first model we spot in ukraine in 2019 mm. Um, Ukrainian security services has actually uncovered like uh, a bunch of the channels, those channels at the center of that model, uh, that they uncovered the scheme of how uh, Russian Guru was paying people for administrating those channels. And the Guru is, of course, the security services. Yes, the Russian intelligence. Mm -hmm. So that's basically like we see this model as being like literally transferred to other countries. So at Mm -hmm. first it was more like, uh, countries with a Russian-speaking population, but they have a lot of Russian-speaking diaspora. And then we see more and more and more just like in different contexts, um, especially we see Telegram right now booming in the Middle East, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And this is um, this infrastructure is very, very important to track because, of course, it's important to talk about the narratives, about messaging, about strategies in terms of the audience. But I find uh, very, very important to focus on the infrastructure because infrastructure shows us the, the objectives. Because if Russia mm-hmm. is building an infrastructure somewhere, whether it's bot networks, whether it's accounts, whether like any any hostile state, right? It's not not just them, unfortunately, the list is quite big, right? But this is the thing we have to look at. You, you mentioned um, the the launch of RT in various new contexts. We've just been reading uh, from our colleague uh, Armando Chaguaceda down in Mexico. Uh, he's been documenting a massive launch uh, across the country um, down there where they've been trying to roll out um, RT on a much larger scale. So it's interesting to hear that that's sort of part of this infrastructure uh, process that you describe. Um, but also thinking about the sort of operations across various regions. I mean, is it your sense that um, you know LLMs have been helping Russia in these various contexts to sort of spread their message? Um, very honestly, I would say no, not yet. Mm-hmm. Like what we see so far, and this is definitely something that requires more and more investigations and looking into it. But what's important to understand that like all technologies about uh, identifying uh, AI generated contents are almost non-existent. Like really, like if someone says like, oh, we have a technology that can spot deep fakes, uh, from my experience right now, there is no technology like that. Like there is some develop development in that space. We see some results indeed, but there is like the efficiency of those models are very, very low at this point. Mm. I personally think that um, they don't have the technology. Mm. Like because even if we talk like all of the large language models in general, all AI is primarily now based in in a Silicon Valley or or around Silicon Valley. There is some part in China, but I'm not an expert on that. I cannot say on that. But even within this, we see right now the big beef happening between the Google and OpenAI, you know, and like we see that some of their models that they are launching are like very, very weak. Mm -hmm. So weak in what sense? 
we get a sense of their efficiency, right? Uh, like in in terms of like what's the output, how good the output is, like how um, how multimodal it is, how many language like in terms of languages, in terms of types of content it can it can produce so far. Like um, GPT models, GPT four is like one of the the most effective. Uh, at least like for what we do, for instance, when it comes to analyzing information space. Um, but yeah, so I also like, that's a big question. Like, do they actually have a technology? And a technology, it's not just about like uh, a code, you know, a model. It's about the human capacity. Hmm. It's about the pool of experts. You have to have that expertise um, and not just from the technology perspective, but from the methodological perspective and how to 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 bring this together, like the tech people and, and people that works in communication, disinformation, that they could talk to each other. That's a big thing. So well, let me pick up on that, because that was the that was one of the key pace, pieces in that report that Adam wrote, Shielding Democracy, that it requires a coalition of people with different kinds of expertise. And you have a company, Let's Data, that you're working on now. Tell us more about both, what are the tools, how do you think about it from that tech perspective, about how you respond to or identify the challenge, which you've just powerfully done for us, but also then how you think about it in terms of a response as part of this broader coalition. Indeed, I think uh, the reason why we started Let's Data in the first place, because previously before Let's Data, I've been uh, working in uh, within civil society in think tanks, leading research, um, working in strategic communication from the policy perspective as well as from the practical one. Um, and one of the reasons why we started Let's Data was because there was constantly this feeling that we are running behind. Hmm. Like as a community, you know, like always, I was always saying that like, I feel like I'm trying to catch a train barefoot running behind it. That's like every time I see this like, enormous inflows from um, coming from like pro-Russian actors, enemy line actors. Um, and I was always like lost. I, I wasn't even able to comprehend like how big is the wave is, right? Oh. Like where should I focus my attention to, right? Like the efforts that to answer those questions, we've needed so much efforts. And I've seen that all of the actors are having the same struggles. State actors, civil society actors, like everyone is just acting of their own gut. Yeah, it's up against this flood of information. Exactly. Which they say is empowered by artificial intelligence. You know, you have the bots that sort of can grow and, and do so much more than any individual might have been able to do in the past. Or is that how you think about it? Or Yeah, indeed. But I still believe from at least uh, what we do, for example, at yeah. Data and some other fantastic like AI-driven products over there that like for the malign actors, um, the appearance of AI uh, at this point maybe help them like to um, two times, maybe three times to improve their and potentially even improve their capacity. Uh -huh. uh, but for us, this is something that we are talking about like 10 times improvement. Hmm. Like right now, we are uh, Ukrainian born tech startup, right? There are like 15 people of us, but uh, we right now can process on the daily basis millions of publications in the real time, being able to extract the narratives, see where they are spreading, like basically give this answer of like, what is out there in the information space? 
what is actually like what's the narrative what's the goals behind those narratives like how what are the tools for that um which that's is, what's different about this than traditional media monitoring you're not just looking for keywords and sort of oh, yeah. context around them you're going much deeper around actors and, and intentions we don't use keywords at all this was actually like it was a pain to develop that thing but we don't use keywords at this point we have the technology that um and this is actually where ai comes very much in handy that uh we formulate the core of the narratives messages and topics based on multiple things like semantic similarity of the text uh based on the things like um uh, who is mentioned there what's the specific attitude towards these people like how it's changing um could you give us a, an example? And the example in my mind in some ways is thinking as if I'm somewhere around the world and we know Russia's active. How, what, what's a narrative? What does it mean? And how would you spot it on those different channels or those pieces? Just one example. Yeah, I think that's actually a great question because it's it comes to the fact like how do we explain technology uh, to technology, right? How do we, and that's a big debate like even how um, I'm I'm always joking that like uh, it's not technology lacking, it's uh, we as uh, expert community lacking uh, in this sense because imagine taking top. 10 best uh, best experts in the field of disinformation lock them in one room and ask them to agree on the term of disinformation yeah. they will kill each other right <laughs> but they will not agree and that's and that's kind of the whole point of it right what do we mean by it yeah. so Atlas data for instance what uh, how do we see the information space is that we have the narratives at the top of it so the narratives are the the stories so the stories that are unfolding the ones that explain the world to the people and the one that shape how their uh, perception like decision making a uh, very simple example but good old narrative that ukraine is a failed state right uh -huh. this is a narrative why because imagine the start of the full-scale war and the person believes that ukraine is a failed state right what does the person is doing like deciding to go to run or maybe to even switch to Russian side or maybe start um, giving intel on uh, on Ukrainian army to Russians or like this is exactly the things that like shape the behavior of people and um, underneath every uh, narrative we have messages the messages that are targeted for each specific audience mm -hmm. on this this ex same example right um for some audiences ukraine is a failed state because ukraine is allegedly heavily corrupted for the other audience it's about like oh because ukraine has never had a history right. you don't have a language you don't have like all these kind of things so these are the messages and this is how we group it right these are the messages that are fueling narrative and then at the bottom of it there are basically this um we call it like minor things like that's how they construct it like fakes manipulations news breaks so basically these things that are constantly feeding that that big infrastructure we actually believe that um if we see the things that are not matching this um infrastructure right uh, so it's either uh, this is something completely new which is quite rare, honestly, because yeah. that's the idea. The narratives shouldn't change dramatically, right? Because uh, that's uh, at some point I remember I was doing one research, another research, and people are like, how the narratives are changing? I'm like, they are not changing. Like, I was even, like, bored of doing that because, like, um, every time the output was kind of the same, but that was the logic, right? They have to be the same. So, but there are, of course, cases when the new things are being constructed, um, and these are very important to spot these cases. 
but if it's not something that is being constructed and if it's not something that is um, matching in this existing cognitive framework that they created... Which is why it needs to be the same to match that Exactly, framework. right? So it has to be the logic. Then we would ignore it. Because it's usually, like, we call it the, there's like a human craziness. <laughs> Because that's the thing of the internet, right? That was what was internet created for, uh, for everyone to write. Exactly, <laughs> right? To write their crazy stuff and to find another person that would like relate to that and stuff. And like it. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so, and this are also something that they are trying to make it work. And we say, oh, no, it's not working. So goodbye, <laughs> not, not paying attention to that. So, and that's how we see it. So that's how we take this, um, con like, framework i would even say right and that would be the moment when we start explaining to technology right uh, to our tech team of how we can um, work together like how do we break down for the technology what's the narrative is right how do we like and that's basically the second and most challenging part with this like how do we now with this framework are uh, using technology you've mentioned to me that there's sort of two general approaches that you're using one is sort of a very broad uh, attempt to capture, um, you know, the entire information ecosystem of a particular context in a particular language, and then see what's new uh, or emerging in that context. And another approach is sort of looking for a specific narrative or a specific actor in a particular context and seeing what they're doing in that context. So I'd love to just understand a bit better how those two approaches differ uh, from the perspective of both the technology and the humans that are using it. Yeah, indeed. I think from the perspective of technology, so um, the the first approach when we know exactly what we are looking for, right, and we go and try to find that. Uh, for that, we would use a few approaches. Um, so one of the approaches is um, we use the open source uh, model. Actually, for that, before the large language models actually appeared, huh? yeah, we did right. uh, we did that before it, like <laughs> AI. <laughs> Not really, but still, um, but. That's a kind of also important thing is this, like, uh, of course, large language model uh, models are game changing in all of this, but there are a lot of things that are um, that we've had before and that are working very good. So, for example, we've took the um, the bear topic. It's an open source model. It's basically this is the model that clusters the topic based on the semantic similarity of the of the words of the um, how one words are, uh, how closely they are mentioned. Like there is a huge methodology behind it, but it's an open model. Anyone can use it. But what we did is like we took that model and we've started fine-tuning it based on what we need, right? We've started like teaching the model like this is a news break. This is what we uh, understand for the news break. This is the narrative. This is how we understand the narrative, right? So we've did a lot of fine-tuning and this is basically the old uh, good natural language processing like machine learning, like even this pre-AI boom that we have right now. This is the model that we are still using because it's very cost-effective, mm -hmm. practically speaking, and it has a very, very high efficiency because we fine-tune it, we invested in fine-tuning it. So that would be the this first approach. We will just take a bunch of text, uh, bunch of social media publications, right? According to methodology, uh, it could be like some specific um, selection, it could be a random selection, it could be everything that we could just take, uh, basically. And then the model will classify it into the topics mm -hmm. on this like news breaks level. For example, let's take this like news breaks level. So we will group these publications in the news break and uh, our analysts as an output, they will uh, very clearly get like this is the topic, this is the way, this is how it's characterized, um, these are the publications in there. 
Uh, for instance, right now we've uh, this is what we are using large language models for is that now our analysts get like even description, like a beautiful summary of like, oh, this is the news break, this is how it has been covered, these are the key messages on it. So this is like more of a fancier way to do it. That would be the first way, right? Like um, this is the uh, how to how to group the topics, right? Um, there, the another way is the the way when we um, know something that we are looking for specifically. Um, then we would use something like um, there is like also very similar technology, but it's embedding technology. Also, like how one words are, how closely words are to each other, okay. and then this is something that. We could say like, okay, we are interested in uh, all of the content about military aid, sure. right? And then the model will classify classify it. But this all uh, requires, of course, uh, at, uh, at the beginning, especially a lot of human validation and feedback and and like fine tuning. Mm. Um, and yeah, there actually there are a lot of ways. I will not dive <laughs> because then we will have a separate <laughs> podcast on it. But I will just conclude it with the fact that like there is a pretty cool technology right now that could help us do both, like to find something that we already know about. Um, and second, and my favorite one, to find something that we don't know about, to basically just go out there, get tons of information and use different types of processing to understand what's happening there, um, to also not have this, there's so much information out there that it's uh, getting harder and harder, even for the best experts in the, in, in the room, to have all the hypotheses about what what could be out there. So that's why I personally very much like when we just take the bunch of information, like, oh, let's see what's there. When you gather your information on the narratives, the analysis, the patterns there, what happens next? Who uses that information? Who needs that information? And what do they do with it? Um, so for Let's Data, for example, we work with uh, different types of actors. We work with state agencies, we work with uh, civil society actors, we work with the companies. Uh, this is an important thing. I, I do believe that uh, private companies are more and more uh, becoming targets or collateral damage of malign influence. We see that, um, and uh, that's, uh, I think, an important thing. I, I do believe they could be an allies for the civil society in, in, in this kind of a battle because they practically have uh, uh, money that they could lose because of that, and there are already cases also, cases like that. You know, an information space with integrity that enables transparency. Let's hope. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Let's, uh, let's hope. But I would still stick with money. <laughs> so... Uh, but that's exactly like the, the thing. So we have different stakeholders. So of course, different stakeholders have different objectives uh, for that kind um, for that kind of thing. So what would happen, for instance, uh, one of the cases we've been working in uh, um, within Ukrainian context with the start of full scale war, we've been monitoring uh, discourse around Ukraine in like over 40 countries worldwide. And there we had a fantastic coalition. We had like Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We had uh, their bunch of Ukrainian uh, NGOs. We had even the private company, like PR companies that were doing campaigning. We even had the things like Ukrzelisnaitsa, uh, like Ukrainian railway station, uh, like okay. railway um, company. It's like a state-owned company. Like, um, that because we've had the insights that were relevant to what they do and like um, that were concerning them. So it was like a huge, huge coalition. And basically what we were doing is that we were, uh, we've had very clear like objectives. We knew very clearly what kind of mandate each of the actors have. Like when I say mandate is saying like someone is doing communication campaigns, someone is working on the policy development, someone is working on the takedowns for social media, right? Everyone has its own 
angle, its own tools and its own expertise and different geographies, right? Not all of them work across 40 countries, right? Uh, it's quite quite a, a large ge geography to operate. So when we would um, identify a narrative, for, in for instance, right? Uh, we would send them, uh, oh, there was actually an interesting case I could... Uh, so the thing that we spotted and the, uh, our software spotted is that in three countries in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, Belgium, Netherlands, uh, I remember, yeah, something like that. Um, they, there was three publications appearing at the same time at three different countries. And the publications were um, writing about, quote, Ukrainian Western aggression, mm. which is a very like it's bad for me to say it's a very good thing but like it's conceptually like fitting so good in the framework of of russia like and this like yeah there is this west whoever that is uh in their head like there is this this west and uh uh, this is like in Ukraine is the puppet, right? And this and they are very good. Like at uh, malign actors uh, in general are very good at creating these catchy phrases, uh -huh. these very clear like roles. And that so, was the narrative that they used to justify the invasion from the very beginning, right? I mean, exactly. So I was like, oh, this thing. I I was like, oh, that's maybe they're creating something, something, right? Right. Uh, but there was a very small traction at that point and just like literally just three publications. But we spotted it because it was like just very like we we have never seen anything like that. Right. So basically our system was like beeping and like this is something weird. Looked into it. And I remember it's a, a funny thing because we've um, alerted our all of the stakeholders. But we alerted them with by saying like this is what we see. But please do not do anything about it. Hmm. Like, do not touch it at this point because we need to see if it's gonna stick, if it's gone, if they are actually gonna invest in promoting it, or it is just like I don't know a random person with their own opinion wrote about it. Because this is a very, this is very important. Is there any coordination behind it? Yes. To push it to promote, and we were following this thing, and actually that was it. It died out. But imagine if we would not like uh, and this is like what a lot of uh, fact checkers like to do uh, that i personally criticize a lot uh, them for it they would see this thing and they would start immediately taking it writing articles about it debunking it right basically legitimizing the whole thing mm. and very often what we see from malign actors they would actually then pick it up and start using it. So that's why it's very important. So this is a case like not on acting, but not acting. Yes, but yes. that's just an, um, a case that came to my mind. J just from a technological standpoint, I mean, what's interesting here, I think, is many things are interesting here. But one aspect of it um, that I think is worth it, you know, to just to highlight from a strategic standpoint, as you've described to me and as we talk about in the report, is that the, the, the way that the, the technology, the artificial intelligence that Let's Data uses and deploys um, is useful in the overall response is this idea that if we can really understand what's happening in the information space more quickly with less effort, less human effort, less time, less resources, um, then you can better target that response, just as you're saying, and decide when it's the right time to deploy your resources or when it's better to hold off and see where things go. Indeed, because that's uh, exactly what I was saying, is that this is for the first time in history where I believe we are finally um, a bit of a equals in this information war, mm. because 
it has been for years that the economy of disinformation was always on the side of malign actors, right? right? For them, it's always cheaper, easier, faster, right? And all the efforts to catch it, understand it, counter were super, super expensive, right? So the economy of disinformation just was not, there are different um, reasons behind it, why, but like it was never on the side of democratic actors. And now the technology actually can help us understanding that we have very different resources in that, understanding where can we put our effort in, right? Where where should we focus our attention to? Because that's actually the tactic as old as this world is, but like to just to confuse, right? To, to put Absolutely. so much information in there. And that's actually a funny thing. You've seen it um, a few times, is that uh, malign actors, they know that a lot of technology is using keywords. So what they would do when they start a very sophisticated um, malign influence campaign, they would flood the information space with wrong keywords mm. so that you would focus on the wrong thing because you're using keywords, so you will pick it up and they know exactly what you're going to see, right? And they're just in the context of a series of spam messages that have nothing to do with the actual influence. Uh, exactly. Campaign. It could be like different tactics. They could be either on the same topic writing, but then writing so many uh, completely different words that uh, it would be impossible for them to understand um, or writing a lot of uh, misspellings even. I remember um, even a, f a few years ago actually um, some researchers said that they were struggling to um, analyze the discourse around Crimea because uh, malign actors put a lot of uh, their uh, words that sounded like crime that were written almost like Crimea and it took them a very long time to understand is this like um, a misspelling or should they look at that content should they not how to filter that out so this is one simple example of like how uh, a better technology can save us so much time and resources and resources on different on different levels well, Ksenia, this has been such an interesting discussion, and I've loved your ability to both lead us to the changing of the economy of disinformation in a way that now maybe the scales are more balanced at this time, to leading us to what does it mean by a narrative to the others. But I'm sure we're going to have people listening from all around. If I was to ask you, what are two or three things if you wanted to know more about this, either people that you like or sources, or you tell me, what would you recommend? I would recommend the very first thing is actually uh, try to use as many AI-powered products in your life as possible. Uh -huh. Very simply, but like um, chat GPT, you know, like, uh, uh, of course, remember about privacy. We still don't know what they're going to do with the data we input in there. Uh, but just experiment with them, play with them. This is a very, this is a technology that is very, very vibrant and it's developing. So it's changing. Second is actually... Uh, I will promote uh, Ukrainian AI communities. There are like different ones. The, the one is uh, AI House. Okay. Um, they have different events. Uh, part of their communication is in Ukrainian, but part in English. They have more and more events in English. And just in general, try to follow the uh, AI scene, the especially young startups. They're coming up with some of the very, very amazing things, like uh, Ukrainian startups primarily, like... Um, Respeacher, Reface, the one that are creating synthetic media, actually, oh. um, uh, just to just to follow them and to see what they are doing. Well, I really appreciate that exhortation, especially 
for the public to build awareness of what these tools are and how they work. Uh, one of the questions we're asking ourselves is what's different um, in terms of actors that are trying to promote the integrity of the information space? What's different about responding um, to authoritarian information operations that use shadow of AI? And, and one of the things that, that we're talking a lot about is just building awareness so people understand what the capabilities are. So I really appreciate um, you saying that. So folks say, um, you know, I've used that tool. I've used Midjourney. I've used Stable Diffusion. I know the types of images, the types of videos that they can produce. Um, so I really yeah, appreciate that exhortation. Well, thanks very much, Xenia. We really appreciate you making time to join us today. Let me add my thanks as well. It's great to have you join us. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of Power 3.0 Podcast, although so often I do feel like we could keep going. For more on these issues, please check out our companion blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence, and additional resources on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas, and join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us at Think Democracy. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies at the National Endowment for Democracy. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please leave us five stars, a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. Let me send a special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, especially producer and sound engineer Amaris Rancy. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll tune again next time. Thank you. Thank you.